Good morning, everyone. As you can uh, tell from this passage, Paul is saying, finally, uh, we're coming to the end of our study of Ephesians this week and next week. Um, hopefully, you're not saying finally, but uh, we're going to begin a study of vocation and work for a short period of time after next week. But we're going to look at this passage in two parts. One this morning is sort of identifying the problem looking at the problem that Paul is addressing here. That is that there are spiritual forces that are aligned against our good. And then next week, we're going to look at the suggested remedy, that is putting on the full armor of God. So would you now pray with me as we prepare to meditate on this passage together? Lord, I pray that as we consider what you have for us this morning, as we consider what the Apostle Paul wrote so many hundreds of years ago, that you would not simply add to our knowledge base, that you would not simply have us affirm what we already believe in looking at this passage, but that you would impress upon us the gospel, that you would change us via the gospel, that you would tear down our walls of pride, that you take away our fear, that you would let us be strong in hope that in our vulnerability, that we would find strength, that we would find your strength, that we would learn how to assess our world rightly, that we would learn to pull back the curtain and see what is really going on, and yet to not fear, yet to find you a bulwark, to find courage in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to do that as we continue to worship together, as we meditate upon this text, and as we confess our faith and come to the table in a few moments. Lord, we pray, Jesus, would you be with us? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. NPR's uh, popular radio show, This American Life, did an episode a few years back called The Devil Inside Me. And the show asked various people if felt like they were under the influence or under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. And according to Ira Glass, who's the show's host, he said, it was like people had been waiting all of their lives for somebody to ask them this question. He sent a producer out to interview people on the street. One woman said, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm in the thrall of that voice, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. Another one said, I actually have a name for the voice. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me me to smoke. One man said, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's like, you might as well have another one because this is all there is. A woman who just got engaged hears her voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take that ring back because he's going to find out the truth about you so you better distract him with a really thin body. At the end of the episode, Ira asked, or the producer asked someone, do you feel like the voice is winning? And a woman replied, right now, yeah, 
I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. Paul is wrapping up this letter, but he's not just tidying up. He's not just sending well wishes to this congregation. He's not saying, you know, the weather's great here. I hope you guys have a nice weekend. No, he says, let's talk about the devil. Let's talk about dark spiritual forces that are at play in all of your lives. And this is a difficult concept for all of us here. It should be. Maybe some of us are here and we're wondering if this is actually true. If there are dark spiritual forces at play, if there is a personified evil, we live in the modern, enlightened West. We don't mind talking about spirituality, but certainly not this kind of spirituality. It's hard to think about a personified evil, that that could actually exist, that he could be a person who is seeking to malign us, that is seeking to do ill to us. Yet, as with this American life story, don't we all have this sensation that we don't really know what we want sometimes, and the things that we really want often aren't those things that are best for us, that we actually want some very self-destructive things, that we find ourselves being drawn along this path towards destruction, towards unhappiness, and we're not really sure why? Don't we find ourselves having this conversation with ourselves, and we're not really sure where, where the self starts and ends? Maybe we're not ready yet to grapple with this personified evil, with a person or a spirit called the devil. But don't we understand what's going on, this dynamic of wanting to do something that we can't quite make ourselves do and not wanting to do things that we find ourselves doing all the time? And we should recognize that even though we're in the so-called modern, enlightened West, that we're the outlier in terms of how we think about the world. Most of the rest of the world doesn't struggle with this idea that there are spiritual forces at play behind the observable facts in our world. Powerful, powerful forces that are propagating evil. And that's how most of the world explains what is wrong with our world and what is wrong with us. C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. He was a writer, professor in England in the 20th century. And he wrote a very interesting book called The Screwtape Letters, which Screwtape is an apprentice devil, and he's kind of learning his craft. And it's very interesting to think about someone actually um, trying to figure out the best way to get us to do the wrong things. But C.S. Lewis, reflecting on Satan, he says that there are two opposite and equal errors with regard to the devil. One is that we overestimate his power, that we have this unhealthy interest in what is satanic, unhealthy interest in what we call the devil, that all evil comes from the devil or for demons, that all of the problems in my life are manifest by Satan, that because he's plotting against me, that's the explanation for everything wrong with my life, wrong with my family, wrong with my church. We can overestimate the power of Satan or we can underestimate it him by assigning little to no role in what is wrong in our lives, what is wrong in our marriages. We can ignore him or not believe in him at all. We can overbelieve, overestimate, or we can underbelieve and underestimate. And Satan is equally pleased with both because it's just as far away from what is true. 
Verse 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against those alone, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What we need to see is that there is more to our struggle with evil than just flesh and blood. There are more to our problems. There is more to our problems than just what psychology, sociology, medicine can tell us about it. And as we think about the terrible things that humans do to one another or to themselves, we understand that psychological factors, social factors, physical factors can help to explain. They can enlighten, but they're not the whole story. Because above, behind, interpenetrating these observable factors, there's this spiritual reality that much more foundationally answers the question of why is there evil in the world? Why do people do the things they do? It doesn't undermine all of those other studies or disciplines. It just says that they're not exhaustive. If we fail to see the spiritual behind the natural, what Paul is telling us is that it's impossible to see the depth and the pervasiveness of evil. And it's impossible to assign solutions that are adequate to address the problems in our world, the problems in our church, the problems in our individual lives. Now, if we recognize this, if we own up to this, if we buy into this, it's very challenging. It means that we can't reduce everything to observable natural causes. And it means that any fix, any proposed solution to important problems is much more complicated than we may have originally thought. And it also means that you and I are contingent people, that we're dependent people. What this does is it pushes us into a conversation with God. It pushes us into a position that none of us like, and that is utter reliance upon someone else, utter reliance upon God. Because if the spiritual forces are aligned against us, can we hope to stand against them alone? Now, let's back out of Ephesians for just a moment for some context, because Paul is not being innovative here. In fact, even in his letter, he's talked about the powers in the heavenly realm. He's talked about in chapter 2, this person called the devil. And he's saying, finally, now, as I'm wrapping up this letter, let me remind you that there's someone who is aligned against you, that has your worst interest as his most urgent mission. But Paul's not being innovative. He's telling, giving us another layer of the story that the Bible has been telling us from the very beginning. The devil is not on every page of the Bible. That would be to overestimate his importance. But he definitely shows up at very critical junctures. He shows up at the very beginning of Genesis. He comes to drive a wedge between mankind and his and her relationship with God. And it's an ingenious plan. It's ingenious because he doesn't say, like he did to Jesus, he doesn't say to them, worship me. His strategy is not to get them to stop worshiping God and now worship him. What he wants to do, more or less, is to get them focused upon themselves, to turn them inward, to begin to worship those things that they want, that they think that they need. What does he say to them? You really deserve so much more than what God has given you. You see that tree over there? Why would God tell you that you couldn't eat of that tree? 
You see, he really doesn't have your best interest in mind. You know what you want. You know what's best for you. So go ahead and eat. It's ingenious because it's not substituting wholesale the worship of God for the worship of Satan. He's just trying to drive a little wedge, get a little leverage between what God has told them is true and good and right and what they can devise on their own. On their own. It just takes a little nudge. And as Satan has that nudge with us, as he begins to push on us, what we begin to question is maybe not our faith wholesale. It's maybe not to just throw out Christianity altogether. It's just to question, what if I could have this? I know that this is not what God has for me, but why is that? Why would God not give me what I think I need? We begin to think that we deserve everything. We begin to elevate ourselves. We begin to elevate our own needs, and we subtly supplant God in our lives. We don't throw him away wholesale, but we begin to question him, question his intentions, question his motivations. And as they, Adam and Eve, in the garden, in this place of beauty and perfection, as they embraced his counsel, they embraced this innate self-centeredness, this self-delusion, and it led to this radical insecurity, this fear that we're the only ones that are really looking out for our best interest. That if we don't look out for ourselves, then our life is not going to go well. This innate self-centeredness is what the Bible calls sin from those pages forward. And what happens is that as we go through life, these natural as well as spiritual factors aggravate that self-centeredness. They push on it. They nudge it forward. They give it a place of honor in our lives, and we can even spiritualize our sin. Natural and spiritual factors begin to turn up the volume on that innate self-centeredness. Self -centeredness. Satan uses basically everyday life, your relationships, your challenges at work, your bank account, your sexual life. All of these are places that Satan can use to nudge you towards self-centeredness, to nudge you towards a deserving mentality, towards a slight bit of dissatisfaction that then grows and grows. Now, knowing this dynamic, knowing that there's a Satan who is real and is seeking your downfall, knowing that there's spiritual forces at play is vital, understanding that, believing that. But this knowledge isn't enough because that leaves us very radically insecure. Because, see, now we don't just have social, psychological, natural, relational factors that we're up against them, but behind them stand the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. So we're sunk. Everyday life is hard enough, and now we know this? What are we to do? Well, let me make a few suggestions. As I said, this morning is more the problem. Next week is the solution. But let me hint at a couple of things, because what does Paul say? In spite of that, in spite of knowing that, be strong in the Lord. And in what? In His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
in spite of these spiritual forces aligned against you. In fact, because of them, because of them, be strong in God's mighty powers against his schemes, against the devil's methods, his strategies, his strategery. Know how the devil seeks to divide your allegiance, to get you thinking about all of the things in the world that you don't have and that you should have, all of the things that God has withheld from you. He doesn't need you to switch teams. In fact, he's happier if you stay in the church with your deserving mentality. He's much happier if you maintain your confession of Jesus and work in the church to seek out power, to let your anger go wild in the church. If you baptize your quest for power, for control, for self-centeredness in spiritual terms, it's very easy. Think with me for a moment about a piano. If you open this lid up over here and you hum a particular note, there's a string in there if you're within, I guess, the, you know, the end keys. If you hum a note, a particular string in there is going to start to vibrate because the sound waves that your voice is pushing is going to hit one particular string in a particular way, and it's going to, it's going to hum because it is tuned to your voice. What the devil does is not try to retune us wholesale, but he plays upon what is already in us. He says, look at that string. I see how it's tuned, and now I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to sing a note that vibrates within that person's heart. He plays upon whatever is already in this, whatever dissatisfaction, whatever dissension, whatever anger, whatever even minor irritation And he sings a note that begins to be in tune with that and makes it louder and louder. He amplifies it. You see, you can't overestimate the power of Satan by saying that he's the one that made you do it, like what a child might say. Well, the devil made me do it. But Satan can't make you into a bad person. But he can identify a string that is out of tune with God and begin to pluck it begin to play it, begin to strum it, and make that the keynote of your life. There's two ways that Satan goes about doing this. We have to step out of Ephesians a little bit, but there's two ways that the Bible talks about that Satan's strategies or his schemes, his methods, and that is temptation and accusation. Temptation takes you back to that original sin. It takes you back to the sin that is depicted in the garden, that God doesn't really have your best interest at heart, that you deserve more, that you shouldn't really trust him because he doesn't know what you really want and what you need. What this does is is it obscures God's commands and spotlights his love in a way that makes it look like or makes it indulgent. Whatever you want must be the will of God. Or I can do whatever I want, and God will love me and forgive me anyway because that's his job. He's God. That's temptation. Accusation is exactly the opposite, that you don't deserve anything, that you're insignificant, that God, when he looks at you, he is so displeased that he can't even glance at you. You're so displeasing to him, so don't pretend that God can accept you. What this does is it obscures God's love and spotlights his wrath. 
Because you can't measure up, God really doesn't want anything to do with you. He doesn't love you, nor does he like you. And having failed, which is a true, which is a truth, having failed, you become a failure. That begins to identify you. You see, in both of those circumstances, temptation and and accusation, what Satan does is he takes a truth, but he amplifies it in such a way that it becomes a lie. And the result is the same. Because whether you think too highly of yourself or you think too lowly of yourself, you're still out of tune. You're still believing a lie. You're still in the very same place, just in a different way. Now think about tuning in a different context. There's a a thing called a tuned mass damper or a harmonic absorber. Big words, but basically it's a huge weight. It's a huge weight that they build into the, the superstructure of a skyscraper, either in the very top or the very bottom. And it's this massive thing of concrete or steel or whatever that compensates for the weight at the other end or at the top of the skyscraper. And so therefore, when a wind comes in and pushes against the skyscraper or an earthquake unsettles the skyscraper and it begins to tilt, that tuned mass damper goes the other way and it pulls the building back into vertical alignment. What if at the the center of your life is not a chord that's out of tune, but the gospel? What if it's not a chord that's out of tune, but it's this massive weight called the gospel that when Satan begins to push on you slightly, you may move, you may lean, but the gospel brings you back to true. It brings you back into vertical alignment. Difference here in Paul's terminology, he uses this idea of the armor of God, which is an external thing. It's something that you put on. But what does the gospel do? We'll get to why that's true in a moment or next week. But the gospel is this internal tuned mass damper that keeps you in alignment. What does it say to temptation? When temptation begins to push against you to disrupt your vertical alignment, It says, well, sure, I don't have everything. Sure, God's withheld some of what I want, but look at what he's given me. Look at the fact that God gave up his only son as a gift to me so that I could have eternal life in spite of who I am. Sure, maybe he has withheld that, but he must have some reason in doing so because he gave me the greatest gift I could possibly imagine. It says to the to temptation that the reason that we don't have everything we want, it's not because God is stingy. It's not because he doesn't know what's best. It's not because he's withholding. In fact, he's given us everything. But then it says to accusation, it says, sure, I can't earn God's love. Sure, I've failed, but I'm also created and made in the image of God. I'm his beloved child. He delights and dances over me all the time even in the midst of my wandering and sin. To accusation, it says, you are loved and you are significant because God says so, that he has come down to lift you up. Do you see how as sin, as temptation or accusation begins to push on us one way or the other, if the gospel is a weight that is rooted at the very bottom of our life, it begins to push back. It has the right answers to temptation or accusation. 
You see, the devil wants you to be over aware of your guilt and under aware of grace. You see, either of those is a chink in the armor. It's a chink in the armor that Satan exploits. You see, on one hand, you believe that you're a sinner, but not loved and accepted. On the other side, you believe you're loved and accepted, but not a sinner. You can fall off the horse on either side. You can get out of tune in either direction. And Satan exploits those. He tunes you into either side of that. But the full armor, the gospel, is both at the same time. That yes, you're a sinner, and yes, you're fully loved and accepted forever. Done. And it's in this, if you root yourself, if this is your weight, if this is what you take your stand in. It's not a 10-step process. It's not reading a book that gives you a checklist of all of the things that you're supposed to do to ward off Satan. It's one thing. It's standing in the gospel. It's standing in the very thing that got you into Christianity in the very first place. It's Jesus and his work on your behalf. You stand in that. You realign yourself in that over and over and daily. That's what pushes against temptation and accusation and keeps you in alignment. It's being tuned to the gospel. It's coming into the life of God by grace, and it's staying there by grace. Let's pray as we come to the table. Lord, I pray again that you would align us with you, that you would tune our hearts to sing your praises, that you would tune our hearts to remember that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation, that we have been made new, and that you delight in us always. And let us also remember that it's not because we are so lovely and good, but it's because you have come in and you have reconciled us, that you went to the cross to make us new, to make us lovely, to make us whole. And as we come to this table, as we confess our faith, would you make that to be more and more of the very root of our life, the very weight that holds us upright. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.